1: Man, you both look exhausted. What is this, the end of RSP season or something?
2: Oh, yeah, that was uh, way back on Wednesday. Finally, that was over. Uh, You know what? It's always that last week that's exhausting. A lot of last-minute calls, and, and, uh, you know, as much as we try to plan things all year. um, Generally speaking, there's less and less, but uh, maybe that's because a lot of my clients are uh, getting a little older, too, and they've retired. Uh, Mission accomplished. (laughs) But Mitch is on the other end of the stick seeing a lot of the younger clients, so.
3: Yeah. And I mean, a lot of our clients are contributing monthly anyways, but even if they are, it doesn't mean they're doing the exact amount. Maybe they came into some money or maybe they sold the property. So the adding a little extra RSPs could be beneficial. And well, I guess we're done for this year. We'll be looking forward to next year's RSPs. Yeah, exactly. deadline now, and uh, I'm sure uh, next February will be a nice brush at the end of everyone trying to get it in too. you would think that with something like this
1: and this happens for you guys every year and everybody who's participating i'm i'm a firm believer in the paying every month you know that don but um Mm -hmm. you'd think that every time you go through this exercise that people would you know people would think you know i don't want to do this anymore let's just do it every month and then we won't have to worry about it at the end of the
2: year like this yeah no it's one of those things that should be considered like a bill that you pay every month um you never miss it pay yourself first but um You know what, you do get these windfalls at the end all of a sudden, or who knows what's happened. And, or maybe you got a bonus, you know, through work. And there's things that you, you know, you can't project all the time. And hey, you know what, if you can make it before the deadline, great, do it. Um, But again, tax planning starts throughout the year. And it's not the RSP is the only one where you can actually go back and make a deduction for the year before. Mm. Everything else has to be done during the calendar year. So it is a, you know, kind of the, the best procrastination vehicle we have out there. But uh, going forward, you know what, uh, we'll just keep working at uh, accomplishing our client's goals and doing it pragmatically and uh, deal with RSPs as, as, as they come up. But uh, Mitch, I know uh, now that that's behind us, uh, we're looking hmm. at education plans. And again, getting a fair bit of calls on this, aren't we?
3: Yeah, now that RSPs are done, or even during RSP season, had a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, look, we're 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 good with our retirement planning, but we we just had kids. Maybe we're in our mid 30s, or even grandparents put, putting money away or trying to to help their adult children. The RESP, uh, registered registered education savings plan, uh, is always important when it comes to the goal of saving for school and starting as. The, Early as possible to save for that goal, it makes a big difference. And with COVID over, uh, thankfully, most of these students they get to go back and live on campus, which means the added cost of residence is also there, which adds to the expense as well. Um, in many cases, it it it's. Getting up there, it, the, the cost of school is getting up there quite a bit, and inflation, obviously a hot topic, constantly. Interest rates were rising very rapidly all last year, and they're starting to slow down a bit. And inflation's also starting to come down. It's still pretty high, but uh, just for some information here, Stats Canada has reported in 2022 the average cost for university in Canada is forty-eight thousand and seventy-four dollars. And that's if the student were to live at home for four years, the cost of going to university and living away so at residence or at a, at a student home would be about $96,004 for four years of school. And I found a nice calculator online. It takes the weighted averages of all across the country and it can project what the estimated university cost will be. And you can enter any birth year you want. So I, I put in 2022. So let's see, how much is it going to cost for someone who just had a kid last year and how much are they going to have to save? And they're estimating with this calculator that the 96,000, it'll, it'll be 96,000 cost four years plus. Housing will be 134000 in 2040. So if you had a kid last year, you have to start saving and plan on spending $134,000 for your 18-year-old kid to go to school for four years. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do, and it's a big number, especially when you're starting at zero. And so what is the best way to save for this large expense after you have your kids? It can be a little overwhelming. And a great account to use for this, it's called the RESP, as I mentioned earlier, and it's a sponsored program by the Canadian government to encourage investing in a child's future post-secondary education, where parents, grandparents or others can contribute to the account and build up funds to be used for schooling. So there are a bunch of benefits to this account. One of the benefits is the government is going to match 20% of every cent you put into this account with the Canada Education Savings Grant, the CESG portion. So these contributions can be done and earn grant all the way from when the account is opened. And the account can be opened as soon as the child gets a social insurance number, which is right when they were born. So you can start this right away and the contributions can earn the grant, from the government and can be done all the way until the end of the year the child turns 17. Now these grants are uh they've been around for a while this this started uh, I guess in
2: 1998 this program and you know it sounds like and it's a great deal I never turned uh, free money away it's 7200. Uh, I guess the only downside is they haven't really kept up with inflation at all and the and had they have the grant would now be twelve thousand dollars. but I guess the argument is is most people as this is the, you know, the politician's argument, most people aren't taking advantage of this in the first place. So that's why they haven't been increasing it. That's a pretty wow. excuse. <laughs> wow. Wow.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, in a nutshell, says well, why are we going to increase it? Because people aren't using the program, and only about one-third are. And if, if anybody, it seems to be it's not the lower-income ones that are using it. It's the higher income ones that are using it. Um, So anyway, it's I guess it's a bit of a hot topic on that stretch. And I don't want to get political here. But you know what, even if they index that with inflation, the grant would be over $12,000 per student now, which it only makes sense because the price of education is like you mentioned, Mitch, is going through the roof.
3: That's crazy. I didn't know that 12,000 is what it would be. Thanks for bringing that up. That's actually eye-opening to me as I, like I said, I didn't know this. Uh, wow. Yeah. $134,000 in, in 2040 is what school costs. And if they still have only have $7,200 of grant, that's, that's not going to do you very well, is it?
2: Well, it's free money is free money, but I just like to say, well, it'd be nice if they were to increase that because again, the costs are going up on one end, but the grant is on the other hand, it is free money. It's kind of don't, I never turn down the free money that the government's going to give you. And this is in regardless of, you know, tax bracket, your income is one of those ones where, you know, in a lot of investments or credits we get, if you make too much money, you don't qualify. This is an exception, at least if you're, regardless of your income, you can still add to these. And again, it's not stopping grandparents to add to it too. This is, this is a fantastic program.
0: Yeah.
3: It's a great benefit. Uh, like you said, it's been around for a while. Nineteen ninety-eight. The the maximum amount per year to put in is is a uh, twenty five hundred dollars, and you're going to get five hundred dollars in grant per year if you do that. So you can put two hundred and eight dollars a month, or you can put twenty five hundred dollars in per year and get the same amount of grant. Uh, like you mentioned, the maximum amount of grant that you can get is seventy two hundred dollars, which is equivalent to about fourteen. years of contributions of $208 a month, and this will get your total contributions up to 36,000 and maximize the total amount of grant eligible to be received for the RESP account. Only way way to really maximize the account you get the RESP is to start as young as possible. The sooner the account is open, the contributions are started, the longer time that the government grant portion can be invested as well as your funds, and it's gonna create compound interest. And the free government money gaining compound interest is just added growth that you're going to be able to let sit there longer and accumulate longer so that when school comes, you gained even more interest on top of that. So let's take two examples here and we'll do family A starts when the child gets their social insurance number and puts $208 a month away until they get to 36,000, which is the amount you'll have received the maximum grant, $7,200. And this, like I said, it's gonna take 14.4 years. Uh, they will then stop contributing to the RESP and let it grow. And let's say let's get a modest return of 5% per year. By the time the child is 18 and ready to go to school, the account would have grown to $64,000. So that's pretty good. Family B starts when the child is 10 and does $5,000 per year, which is the allowable amount of catch-up that you can do per year to still get the maximum amount of grant. So you're allowed one catch-up year every year. So instead of putting $2,500, you can put $5,000 or $416 per month. So since you're allowed to do that, this family would have also contributed $36,000 to get the maximum amount of grant. And by the time the child is 18, it would have had the entire grant money and contributed the same as Family A, but their RESP is only worth forty-two thousand. So, if you start when the child's born and you do two hundred and eight, which is a lot more manageable than trying to do catch-up at four hundred and sixteen, it's it's tough to play the catch-up game. Um, it's easy to postpone things and think that okay, well, I'll be able to do that later. But the the difference of waiting that long or putting it off can be huge. You look at $64,000 RESP, tourist school, versus $42,000. So it's a difference of $22,000 and they contributed the exact same amount. And that's why it's best to start as early as possible and get the compound interest working for you. Uh, Like I said, it's it's also harder just to put away that $5,000 versus $2,500. It's a tough stretch to do that and procrastination is
2: the biggest reason people don't accumulate money and again putting it off until you're 10 the child's 10 is really procrastinating something that should be done and it's kind of interesting stats can says just over half the families with a child over 18 um are taking advantage of this program so yes it's uh it's it's uh, it's one of those things i think why are they missing the boat i know scott you're a huge advocate of this program you've uh, got one in school right now and it's and I know it's been a great great for you as over the years in and, in terms of accumulating money
1: absolutely and and you know I highly recommend that you do this right at day 1 and as you guys were talking about at the beginning of the show uh this time of year everybody's scrambling to try to uh, whether you're topping up or just even find the money at the end of the year, good luck with that. Whereas this time of the year, I don't worry about it anymore because it's all been done. <laughs> I really yeah. don't, and I used to yeah. all the time. So it's, um, I, I would highly recommend it. It's, it's a lot easier, a lot less stressful doing it this way.
2: Yeah, and and the same goes with education. Don't wait till the kids all of a sudden. Wow, I can't believe the kids all grown up now. Boy, I guess I should put money for university. Well, it's that's like, the same. Oh, any,
1: any, anybody I know whose kids are having kids, uh, my niece just recently going, you know, as a couple of kids, I, I say the same thing. If you can start this right now, uh, you are so much, so far ahead of the game.
2: And it's interesting. The average RSP investment was ten thousand four hundred eighty-five dollars, and the most wealthiest ones in the top twenty percent had RESP's at twenty-two thousand, where the bottom twenty percent had. RESPs at thirty three hundred, and those are the ones that set them up. Yeah. So looking at Mitch's numbers, they're not even coming close to what they could have accumulated.
3: No, and that's it's also tax free growth until it's until it's taken out, and then when it's taken out to use for school, it's taxed in the kid's name. So you're looking at that all that growth from thirty six thousand to sixty four if they start with the kids zero doing two hundred and eight dollars a month versus. Um, the numbers you just figured, that's that's way shy of what they could be doing and the potential growth and the amount they could is just huge.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, Don, I know you're a fan of Warren Buffett. He's got his annual letter out.
2: Yeah, who who isn't a fan of Warren Buffett? The guy's ninety two years old. Ron Foxcroft, listen up, you know you got a lot more time working at uh, the Fox Forty and Fluke Transport. If he's ninety two and going strong, if that's not good enough, his partner is Charlie Munger, who's ninety nine. Like these, and guys... who doesn't? And
1: who doesn't still love the song Margaritaville? Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry, it's the wrong Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, thinking Warren of a Buff- different. I'm thinking of a different buffet than you are, Don.
3: Yeah,
2: totally different buffet there. Yeah, (laughs) Warren Buffett has been, you know, CEO of of Berkshire Hathaway Holdings. And this is a company that started in 1965. And they have just had an incredible track record. But what's so, you know, it's one thing to run a fund. And he's just had investors put money into these investments. And he buys different stocks. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later. But it's, it's all the lessons he also gives us along the way and investment lessons. And he's almost a bit of a, a a philosopher at the same time. So, you know what, looking at his track record since 1965, his average annual rate of return has been 19.8%. Like, if you happen to, I, and I was born in 63, so if my father had put in $1,000 and bought the stock in 1965, that would have been, first of all, a great gesture. Secondly, it would be worth thirty-two million dollars right now. Thirty-two million. If you put it that same thousand in the S and P five hundred, it still would have been outstanding. It'd be worth two hundred thirty-eight thousand. So you're thinking, you know what? Forget all these investment strategies. I'm going to just throw it into this. Well, that doesn't quite work either, because really, he had some huge success earlier on, and when he was less known. In fact, if you look at the last 10 years, quite good, but his annual rate of return has been 14.23% the last 10 years versus the S&P 500 has been 13.74. So basically, he's averaged similar to the market in the last decade.
3: Out of curiosity, just I know you mentioned he's 92 and Charlie's 99. Who's going to be running it? Is this part of his letter here? Because he's getting this great return that you're mentioning here, but obviously that's a big part of him, and he is 92 so yeah, I'm they have curious. a. This is a,
2: a great question. This is a question that comes up every year. They have this annual meeting uh, that is almost like a fair in Omaha, and uh, he he's always a, he used to play baseball. I can't imagine him playing baseball anymore, <laughs> but it's almost a picnic, and so yeah, he's got um, a lot of people as a secession and already are are currently running part of the plan, but as he says, I haven't made them this yet. Because I might change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so he's kind of keeping him in the loop. But yes, he's got, he, so he's getting help as we speak. But this is kind of an interesting fun because, you know, what's so different of this than somebody just buying a bunch of stocks? Well, first of all, a good chunk, and I'm not quite sure of the percentage, but let's just say half for an example, is in private equities. And we've talked about this on the show before. What's a private equity? Well, these are stocks. That are no longer in the stock market. He's bought the whole company. So uh, he's got he owns two railways. He wins 98% of one and 92% of another. He owns the whole company, like Geico. He owns the whole insurance company. So these are valued based on their earnings, and they're not as volatile. So a private equity isn't based on whatever, you know, wh- whoever happens to bet on it that day. So they're, they're, it's a totally different private equities have a different heartbeat line than the normal stock market because they're only valued, say, once a month and they're using fundamentals to value them. They're not using the emotions of humans trying to value the stock market every day. So they're more accurate um, and they don't have the volatility. So a good example is that and it happened to be this week. Um, Omers came out with their earnings uh, last year and they've done extremely well but they've got a good chunk in private equities. And that's what's done very well for them. So they end up with a a positive return last year, which is not normal because the average Canadian defined benefit plan actually averaged negative uh, 10.3% last year. So it wasn't just your investment or your advisor that lost money last year. All the pension funds lost money, except OMERS actually reported a gain. And the reason is, is because they've, they have a, a very large amount in uh, private equities that are valued not based. They're based on fundamentals, so they actually value them themselves. So as opposed to what we feel that the stock is worth, and uh, Omer's has averaged seven and a half percent per year over the last decade. Again, not too dissimilar than a lot of the our clients' portfolios, but it just has a different heartbeat line. And again, we're big fans of of having private equities in your portfolio. In fact, in our iProfile profile product, a good chunk of the money is now invested in Northlead and Cigard that is managing private equities and private debt. So great that they're running this. But so this is the difference of simply you know, buying in the stock market and, and Berkshire is that they have these these private um, companies. And so they've always said they're not stock pickers. They're business pickers. So they're looking at things at the long run. And, and they admit wholeheartedly that they've made a lot of poor investments over the years. Um, but they also find out that there's no such thing as an efficient market. And what that means is that the stocks are fairly priced every day. And basically both him and his partner, Charlie are saying that's not true at all. That only exists in, in textbooks, this whole efficient market thing. They love having Marnie in the invest in stocks also because he, they find that they get undervalued that, Human beings with their emotion start selling them off and start saying it's worth this when really they're worth a lot more, and so they publicly they they feel that the public markets allow Berkshire to buy prices at wonderful of wonderful businesses at wonderful prices is what they're quoted. So they've had they quite modest they feel they've had satisfactory results, and really what they've done is they've been a product of a dozen good ideas. About every five years, I feel they have a good idea. And they So that's 1994, they bought Coca Cola for $1.3 billion. Well, now they're getting dividends every year of $700 million a year from that investment. Uh, Amex, they bought in 1995, again, about $1.3 billion. It's hard to talk about billions. Anyway, they're getting $300 million per year in dividends, which they constantly put back in and buy. So the lesson for investors, is the weeds weather away and the flowers bloom it takes it takes a few winters to make you know to work wonders and it helps to start early plus as he says it helps to live in the until you're in your 90s too <laughs> okay so being around for a long time being patient investors so you look at their top five holdings apples are number one Bank of America American Express coca-cola chevron you know, very large companies that they they just bu- keep buying more and more shares because they love the businesses and they're very well diversified. And again, not too dissimilar to what I'm sure your advisor is doing in terms of your asset allocation. It should be, do not try to get rich quick. It, it never works. And they're the first ones that talk about this. Um, patience is, is what really separates a long-term investor doing well than trying to oh, I'm gonna time the market. They totally do not believe in timing the market. And this is something Mitch and I have talked about and our whole team have talked about all the time. So there's lately, there's been a lot of talk about repurchasing shares and this only helps the CEOs. And this has been very newsworthy. Um, So basically what it means is let's say your company has some extra money and they simply say, you know what? We have a, a million shares. And each share is $10 a share. And we're going to buy back 100,000 shares. So they buy back 100,000 at 10 bucks. Well, basically, that just means there's only 900 shares left. They're buying the shares on the market. So the company is basically getting rid of those shares. So instead of being a million shares now for this $10 million company, there's only 900,000 shares. And now the company's so now what happens is the company is still worth $10 million. That doesn't change. But the shares automatically go up. The shares are now worth $11.11 because the company has repurchased the shares. So who does this help? Well, the media has often said it helps the CEO. They get these big options and they get their bonuses. That That may be true. But really who it helps the most are shareholders. And who are the shareholders? Everybody. You know, your pension fund. You, who you have your money with, your your RSP. This helps everybody a lot more by a long shot than the CEO. So when you're told that repurchases, and this is a quote right from his annual letter this year, when you're told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders, or that, or the country, or in are particularly beneficial to the CEOs, you are either um, listed as either an economic illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> or a silver tongue demagogue. Now I had to go look up what demagogue means. And basically it's someone who's appealing to the desires and prejudices of ordinary people, rather than using a rational argument, hmm. which means they're just trying to make fake news or try to, uh, you know, extend their own agenda. They're not really helping anybody doing this. And in this case, both. So, but I love the idea that you're the, this person who's ever writing this is generally either an economic illiterate and really they don't are not telling the story at all. And it's it's been told right now. Um, our government, our federal government, is looking at taxing any share buybacks. This has been something that's been thrown around the last few months, and this would actually result in double taxation because if you're buying back the shares, you are now taxing that, and then when you when the when it goes up in value. Well, when you, when you have a capital gain, you're taxing the individual that owns their shares. So it's another way of double taxing. So it's kind of interesting just how well has Berkshire done. Well, the last 10 years, Berkshire literally has paid one-tenth of 1% of all the U.S. taxes collected. So one thousandth of all the taxes collected. So basically, if there was a thousand companies like Berkshire, nobody else would have to pay income tax in the U.S period that's Nobody, interesting yeah they collect they they've literally sent the government 32 billion in taxes over the last 10 years so to talk about well these companies are getting too big and well where's this money going they are paying tax so anybody that's saying well they're not paying their share fair share of tax oh yeah you know what it, it's it's really helping so it there's so many you know words of advice that warren buffett has said over the years and i got a I got a few favorite ones. Um, You know, the most important of uh, Warren Buffett's quotes is rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. Okay. (laughs) Try not to lose money. And Mm -hmm. the idea of someone is sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. What's that mean? Invest for the long term. That's why you have the shade. And that's your retirement umbrella or shade, if you will. And, you know, he often has been quoted, our favorite holding period is forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we love holding this. And so he says, all there is to investing is picking good stocks at good times and staying with them as long as they remain good companies. And price is what you pay, but value is what you get. He's not trying to get the next hot stock. And so he's, Right now is a great example. And in one of his more famous quotes, whether we're talking stocks or socks, I like buying quality merchandise when it's marked down. And the stock market was down about 10 to 20% last year. For Warren Buffett, he says, these are on sale. We should be buying these right now. And for whatever reason, our human emotions get in the way. So these are the kind of things that really test an investor's resolve. And mutual funds aren't emotional. They have money, people managing this money for you and trying to take the emotion out of it. And he says the most important quality for an investor is temperament, not intellect. It's not about trying to say, okay, a person with 160 IQ is going to do well. No, emotions get in the way. Have a very good temperament about investing. And, And so it really comes down to understanding what you're buying. So never invest in a business you cannot understand. This is what, one of his many quotes. So right now he doesn't like crypto. Doesn't understand it. Um maybe it'll never be good. Um he never liked technology. He never understood it. Well, now he's a ma- biggest shareholder of Apple. So I guess he started started <laughs> to understand that one. So again, it's it's understanding it cuz he has lost a lot of money too. Had a lot of losers over the time. So at the end of the day, he says, "Here's the secret. I'll tell you how to become rich." And he says, "Close the doors. Be fearful when others are greedy, and be greedy when others are fearful." Mm. And that really comes down to don't get emotion involved. So it's un- one thing you often don't hear about Charlie Munger sayings, though. And here's his. Here's a few that were written in this year's um, annual letter. It says, "The world is full of foolish gamblers." Uh, sorry, foolish gamblers that will not do as well as a patient investor. Huh. Okay. Again, keep to the plan. I know we talk about this all the time. And don't keep bailing away in a sinking boat if you can simply swim to one that's seaworthy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another Charlie Munger saying, uh, Ben Graham, he quotes him as a day in the stock market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. If you keep making something more valuable, eventually smart people will start buying into it. And this is the day-to-day in the stock market. The markets goes up and down like a yo-yo. Stop looking at the day-to-day fluctuations. That's a voting machine. Long-term, it's a weighing machine. They'll weigh out. Is it a good value or not? And finally, I'll finish off with this one. And this is kind of Munger zinger to Buffett because these two kibits all the time. Said, Warren, think more about it. You're smart. But I'm right.
1: (laughs) We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a break here. We're coming right back.
0: You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900CHML.
1: We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We're going to talk about the myths of retirement. You mean it's not as much fun as Don says it is? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> you have a good planner, and I i know Don likes to maximize fun. He's still trying to get that one trademarked, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but I know with all of his clients, he definitely emphasizes not ma- maximizing fun during your retirement and not just scraping by. So getting your retirement plan is crucial uh, when it comes to having successful retirement. You need to be confident that your money is going to last through your retirement while giving you the standard of living that you want and need. That's why it's important to have a solid financial plan and also dependable advice. Having a CFP professional, uh, someone that is doing the comprehensive financial plan is the key to success. There have been a number of myths about retirement planning circulating for years that can have a negative impact to your retirement plan. So let's take a look at some of the more common ones and the reality that lies behind them. So one of the most common ones is the cost of living will be lower in retirement. It's a very common myth among Canadians is that their income needs will be much lower when they stop working. After all, won't they have to maybe stop commuting to work or possibly not have to pay their mortgage anymore? But, but is, is it real, real, realistic for their cost of living to be lower? So many financial advisors suggest you should plan to have as much as 80% of your working income in retirement or more if you plan on an active retirement involving travel. I know when we do our plans, we we certainly try to keep their standard of living the same as when they're working. Because whether you are going to be doing the same things, we tend to find that lots of people will find other things to spend that money on. And the incomes actually and the expenses are actually going to be pretty similar to when they're working. But for starters, plenty of Canadians have they also have debt and retirement. 14 percent still have a mortgage and 42 percent have some kind of debt still. So managing debt and retirement will have an impact on your disposal income as well. And many retired Canadians are still supporting their adult children financially. Uh, for example, with education costs, like I mentioned previously with the RESPs, uh, help them make a down payment on a new home or, or uh, also life expectancy. Um, people are living longer as well. So you're more likely to have health issues and those health issues will also increase your expenses Uh, that you weren't having to deal with while you were working. So number two here is uh, RSPs are a complete retirement plan. This is a potentially harmful retirement myth, given that many people will need more than their RSP income to bring them a comfortable retirement. While RSPs undoubtedly provide a tax efficient way of investing for retirement, they're only one piece of the puzzle. A retirement financial plan We'll also, take into account numerous sources of income such as CPP, OAS, company pensions, TFSAs, uh, dividends, possibly rental income. So, only having an RSP is not going to be that retirement safe haven for you. So, that's a complete myth, and you need other sources of income to have a successful retirement. Uh, number three here is $1 million is enough for retirement. This is a long running myth about retirement. Uh, even used to see commercials what is your number and lots of people think that a million dollars was that magic figure to have a secure retirement Uh, but it doesn't seem to be so because there's so many different factors to retirement like when do you intend to retire and income uh, everyone's income is going to be different if you're going to be traveling Uh, do you have kids to support do you still have a mortgage Uh, what other retirement incomes do you have cpp oas pensions uh, there's a lot more to it than just getting to that magic figure. Uh, also, when do you plan on retirement? Are you going to retire early? You'll you'll need more than a million dollars. And if you're going to retire early, rather than later, I know here freedom 55 used to be a thing, and maybe that million dollar figure was common at freedom 55. But now it's pretty rare to see people retiring at 55. You're seeing 60s, maybe even 70 uh, now, because everyone's living longer. So the retirement dates are also being pushed back. As well uh i know i just read this past week actually that there's a study done and that gen z people i know that's you you boomers probably don't know what gen z is but it's right below me, the millennial. Uh, they're gonna need, I don't know because
1: there's, I, I don't know, Mitch, because <laughs> there isn't any boomers on this call. Uh, <laughs> I am, I got, um, I, I got AstraZeneca as my first shot, not Pfizer, so I am not officially a boomer, and I don't believe your dad is either. Just saying, go ahead, carry on. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> he's, he's right in the heart of the boomer gen. <laughs> uh... But yeah, the, the, the study showed that Gen Z is gonna need about three million dollars to retire. It's still a ways away. So inflation, expenses, it that figure of a million dollars was it's not it doesn't really do it justice because everyone's retirement lifestyle is different. And also retirement lifestyle is going up constantly with inflation as well. Uh, retirement plan portfolio should be conservative. This was a retirement myth. Uh, used to, you used to get larger interest rates with the fixed income portion, and retirement portfolios also didn't have to support people's lifestyles for as long. People weren't living as long before, so you could really dial back the equity portion of your portfolio and have a more conservative retirement portfolio, but it actually runs the risk of possibly not keeping up with inflation and also running out of money. You might need to add more equity to your portfolio to make sure that you're going to get the long-term rate of return to make you live to 90 to 95, maybe even hundred, and maybe have some money left over to pass down. But you definitely don't want to make yourself too safe that you're giving yourself a poor rate of return. That's going to get run out of money in your later years. And the number Five myth here is never carry debt into retirement. It may seem like common sense, but there's, there's, there's good debt to have and bad debt to have. You don't want to carry your 20%, 30% credit card debt, but if you're relying on your home to fund your retirement, a HELOC is not a terrible debt to have. It's going to provide some retirement income, which is a home equity line of credit. It's going to rep- uh, that's not a bad debt have because it is supported by your home compared to a credit card or a high interest uh, line of credit. So it's are the best uh, for retirement there. <laughs> (laughs) We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott
1: Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right
0: back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not. Necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905 972 7420. All right, our last segment, Anchored in Debt. This doesn't sound yes. too
2: happy, it's too positive. You don't want this. <laughs> No, de- I mean, that debt is not depending on the situation, but manageable debt maybe, but uh, it doesn't seem to be the case right now. I'm gonna get to that. But really the anchored part is all about we anchor ourselves to certain events. And anchoring bias refers to the human tendency to base our decisions on a particular reference point or anchor. So a good example, weekends are supposed to be relaxing. Health statistics suggest otherwise. Traumatic injuries from crashes, falls, and collisions are way more common on the weekends than on weekdays. Why is that? Weekend warriors are out. You know, they're out. They're having some fun. And why are they out there? They're still anchoring in their heads. Remember how they used to do things as a teenager or in their 20s. But now they're 40, 50, 60, what have you. And they are not able to do the same things they used to be able to do. So, the, their mind is anchored as a teenager, but their body isn't. And this is the same idea that happens with investing. You're finding real estate is a, a perfect example. A year ago, people were buying real estate like crazy because they saw the market go 53% in the, last, the previous two years. Well, now the market is down probably around 25% from its high. And yet they were buying and so because they're anchored saying, Well, look what it's done. I said, well, if they really looked at the past 100 years, they would know that this is an anomaly. This doesn't happen on a regular basis. And so then they'll they'll end up buying and probably paying way too much for a house, which is what actually happened. So, anchoring. Anchoring to this. And again, good news, we start anchoring to that, but then bad news. We start saying, well, it's not going to get better and all the things politically is not good and the markets are down and interest rates are up. And, you know, you always have to go back to sir john templeton saying the four most dangerous words of investing are it's different this time so it is always the same and again warren buffett as, a, as the first segment goes he constantly says you know america i i you know doesn't need me i need america to do well and that's why he's done well because it's long-term investing so on the debt side you know there's a big article in the globe mail took a uh, 6,150 respondents and our national anthem right now should be, which it is already, Oh Canada, but it should be spelled OWE because it is, we owe right now a dollar 83 for every dollar taken in. And after tax, this is higher than the U S Britain, Germany, France, and Japan. This is super high. again, the interest rates are, are only making this worse. Our debt, currently, 45, 46% is mortgage debt, 21% is credit card debt, of which 30% don't pay off the balance, okay? 20% is other debt, which could be car loans or other types of loans. And as Mitch mentioned, uh, HELOC's home equity line of credits is 19%. So yeah, it's for the percent with mortgages, Isn't that high from the eighteen to twenty? About twenty nine percent have mortgages, but once you get in the thirties, all the way from thirty to fifty, you're basically seventy one percent have mortgages, Um, and then it drops to forty five percent when you're in your fifties. Twenty two percent in the sixties. Interesting enough, seventy percent, sorry, eleven percent have mortgages in their seventies. They're not as big, but uh, you know, and they're and they're fairly high levels. You're talking about five hundred thousand dollar average mortgages. For those 30 and 40 year olds. And when those mortgages come up for renewal and they're 4% higher, that's significant. So, you know, you think we should be debt free in retirement, and that would be ideal because it, it's all about cash flow what's coming in, what's going out. And yet, you know, there's still a lot of people that have debt going into retirement, and HELOC debt, a uh, homeowner, homeowner equity line of credit, is one of the bigger ones. It's kind of interesting. Right now, the ones that have the largest home equity line of credit debt is people over 70. $124,000 is the average. Okay, and what are they likely doing? Oh, possibly buying real estate, maybe shares. They're borrowing to buy or helping millennials, okay, helping their kids buy a house. So they're taking a, a, a loan against their own house. And it it's making it very difficult. So, you know, let's say there's a borrower that took 100 grand out of his home equity line of credit and a $400,000 mortgage to buy rental property that's paying $2,500 a month in rent. Well, a year ago, it all worked out. Interest rates were, you know, you could get 3% for the home equity line of credit, 2% for a mortgage, and after property taxes of $350 a month, you're still making $170 a month. But now, with with that home equity line of credit around 7% and the mortgage renewing, at about 6% or five and a half, and taxes are still there, you're now in the whole 1000 a month. So because you took on this debt, it sounds all good when you took a look at what it was doing in a, in that short couple years. But again, we we're getting anchored to that. So at the end of the day, you may have bought a $500,000 property. It's only worth $400,000 now if it's dropped 20%. So And you're losing 1000 a month. So that real estate investment did not work out so well. And that could be in many other types of investments. At the end of the day, this is where you need to have calmer minds and talk to your financial planner and make sure the strategy makes sense for the long run and not the short run. We have been
1: planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another great show under the belt. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Have a great week.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900CHML.